Hello Insiders, welcome to our podcast where science meets innovation and where our amazing guests share their experiences and their wisdom with us. My name is Dr. Anne Latz and I'm beyond excited for today's episode. Why is that? Because we're going to talk prevention, a topic that's super close to my heart. With today's guests, I want to discuss if sitting really is the new smoking. Our guest today is Anand Yani, a honorary research fellow from the University of Oxford. Anand holds a PhD in immunobiology and several other certificates. He's also super prone to healthcare innovation and an expert in public health. So, Anand, welcome and great to have you here. Thanks, Anne. Uh, great to be here and uh, really looking forward to, to having this discussion with you. Yeah, same here. So, um, as I'm so excited, I think we should just start with the basics um, and maybe also a little bit with your background. I mean, I talked a little bit what you did and uh, where you're coming from, but maybe you can let us know where you're, yeah, I would say enthusiasm and expertise in public health prevention and value-based healthcare is coming from. Thanks, Anne. So, uh, uh, I was born and raised in the U.S. and I spent about a decade as a molecular immunologist studying gene regulation in, uh, and epigenetics in B and T cells, which is quite far from public health. Um, but while I was studying for my PhD, um, I had sort of a change of heart in the sense that I wanted to become an academic clinician where I would spend some time uh, in the clinic with patients and then that would inform the questions that I asked in the uh, laboratory. Uh, and um, <clears throat> during that time, I wanted to be part of a universal healthcare system. And so I only applied to medical schools in, in the UK. Uh, I was accepted at Oxford and I started the medical course at Oxford, uh, which I enjoyed. Um, and two years into it, uh, Despite enjoying the course, I started realizing that actually medicine was probably not for me. I was much more public health and policy oriented. So I deferred for a year and then I started working with uh, a guy called uh, Mir Gray, uh, who is in the England Department of Health. And he was running a program called the Rightcare Program, uh, which was started in response to the 2008 global financial collapse. Uh, we needed to achieve 20 billion pounds in efficiency savings in the English NHS by 2014. And the Right Care program was looking at how we could cut the budget without negatively affecting health outcomes, i.e. improving value-based healthcare uh, within the English context. Uh, I did that with Muir formally for about three years, and then he and I started a boutique advisory uh, firm called Better Value Healthcare, Uh, where we work with governments and other healthcare providers and payers across Europe uh, and the Middle East uh, to help them implement value-based uh, healthcare. And my interest in public health and prevention really comes from that uh, background on value-based healthcare because what's higher value than actually preventing somebody from getting sick in the first place? Yeah, that, that if you explain it like that, it makes a lot of sense. But I think you also alluded to a very um, interesting point because not a lot of people think of, especially patients, but maybe also care providers not really think about costs as uh, being super relevant and what they do. They are not really talking about it, but this is, of course, one side and one different stakeholder you should be aware of in that context. Um, so in prevention, Could you maybe give us your short description? 
what is prevention and also why is it so unsexy for the individual? Yeah, prevention is, uh, it is quite complex and tricky. And I'll also maybe make a brief comment on your cost thing in relation to prevention. So you can broadly disaggregate prevention into three subtypes. There's primary prevention. So you prevent somebody from getting a disease in the first place. So another way of framing that is health promotion. How do you keep individuals healthy and improve their well-being? Then there's secondary prevention. So somebody is uh, at the early stages of a diagnosis of a condition and you intervene early to try to help them get their condition into remission. So uh, for many non-communicable diseases or lifestyle-related diseases like type 2 diabetes, um, hypertension, these can all be brought into remission through lifestyle changes. And then finally, there's tertiary prevention, which is somebody's been diagnosed with the condition and is living with the condition And you want to try to help them get that condition under control to prevent severe uh, uh, negative health outcomes. So, for example, for somebody with type 2 diabetes, you would want to help them to get their uh, diabetes under control so that you prevent them from having their leg amputated, for example, or getting diabetic uh, retinopathy or having a stroke or a heart attack. Um, and in terms of why it's sort of unsexy. It's, you know, I, I think there's a lot of reasons behind this. I mean, I think part of it is because it requires discipline and hard work um, and uh, a change of lifestyle. So people like being comfortable and they like their routines and that inertia sets in and, you know, they sort of have always done something in a particular way and they want to continue doing things in a particular way without um, realizing that they need to adapt and adjust their lifestyles based on their age and their changing circumstances. And from a healthcare systems perspective, um, it's also kind of unsexy as well, right? Because uh, from a contracting perspective, it's tricky because how do you prove that you've prevented something? You know, for primary prevention, how do you prove that you've actually prevented something and kept the population healthy? And from an innovation perspective, um, most of the time, most of the time, I think Hello Inside is different, but most of the time, innovation is focused on the uh, supply side of healthcare. So, you know, we need more doctors, we need more nurses, we need more hospitals, we need more diagnostics, we need more tests, we need more pharmaceuticals, etc. without actually looking at the demand side, which is how do you prevent people from needing to have healthcare in the first place? Yeah, very extensive and very uh, differentiated answer. Uh, so I absolutely agree with you um, that it's not really visible what you can do with prevention. But at the same time, as you mentioned, also the NCDs, the non-communicable diseases, we know that some of the risk factors are really responsible for a lot of diseases. So actually, it's super, super powerful. If you, you already mentioned lifestyle changes, if we really try to Yeah, implement those for each and every one, then we could have a large effect then. Yeah, I completely agree. So, also, I mean, I'm always very, yeah, surprised or maybe the, the surprise not the right word, but what I always try to, to do is really, yeah, load those words like prevention with a uh, yeah, more positive, uh, positive context because it sounds very abstract and nobody really thinks about it, but it could be something super, super nice, super yeah, powerful, um, especially, I mean, you mentioned it has several levels. It's all, first of all, the behavior change and also the structural to it. And if we really start with the, yeah, the behavior aspect, then we really could 
try to start early with young people to educate them for for a healthy lifestyle because just to comment on ncds again um, those are responsible for i have in mind over 70 percent of global deaths per year uh, that's that's at least what i read um yeah could you maybe tell us a little bit about ncds and the interconnections also with risk factors sure um so yeah i 70% of uh, morbidity and mortality uh, is related to these NCDs. Um, and our spend about, I think, I think it's between 60 to 80% of healthcare expenditures also related to NCDs. So it's a huge burden. And the really um, sad thing is that most of these NCDs are preventable through lifestyle changes. And, you know, I think as we'll get into uh, this, this, this podcast and this interview, you know, there's uh, a lot of a host of internal and external factors um, that put individuals at risk uh, for NCDs that, uh, again, through lifestyle changes or lifestyle hacks can actually be um, changed so that they are living more healthily. In terms of risk factors, physical activity, diet, Uh, tobacco use, whether that be smoking or chewing tobacco, uh, and alcohol consumption in terms of lifestyle behaviors. Those are some key risk factors. But then there are also structural factors that uh, will dictate whether an individual actually has the opportunities to be healthy and engage in healthy lifestyles. So clean air quality, uh, looking at availability of high-quality foods, within their areas uh, and you know this relates to food deserts for example uh, and then also access to green spaces and places where you can actually be physically active yeah super important that you pointed out the risk factors i mean some of them se seem so obvious like smoking alcohol diet and physical activities is something we all know that it's associated with the health but maybe because we are throwing around with the term ncd so much uh, uh, i would like to point out again so the Four most common ones are the ones that uh, yeah we see are really responsible for most of the death and also premature death. So yeah, of even younger people between 30 and 69. So it's cardiovascular diseases, it's cancer, it's respiratory, and it's diabetes type 2. And those four have a lot in common in respect to those risk factors you mentioned already. And I think it's super important to really get this connection and explain how Yeah, those diseases are interconnected and they all really, so if you do one lifestyle change in one of those risk factors and start with that, you really can make a change there. At the same time, I'm interested in what did you observe like in respect to the pandemic that was going on? I mean, talking about physical activity, talking about in general trends to have a different sedentary work. Uh, so is sitting the new smoking and has it been worth in the last two years? Yeah, so sitting is definitely problematic in, in all its forms. Um, and like you mentioned, sort of office-based work is, is definitely uh, risky because people are sitting for you know eight hours a day. Uh, that's why I have a standing desk and I normally stand. Uh, I'm sitting for this interview, but I normally stand. Yeah, we forced you to, I yeah, know. Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, I would be too hyper and moving around too much. Um, uh, and then also transit, for example. Um, people are sitting in their cars, you know. Yeah. And I mean, one of the one of the things that I find quite interesting is this this 
uh, rhetoric around you know electric cars being so important uh, for climate change, and um, there's a lot of hype about electric vehicles, and you know I think they're a less bad alternative than combustion vehicles, but they're still not good because they're taking up so much mm-hmm. space, and it means that people aren't actively traveling and they're not using public transport. Um, during the pandemic, I think there was uh, an increase in uh, sedentary behaviors. So I think a lot more people were staying at home um, at a population level. I think there are examples of subgroups of the population using nature more, for example, or having the opportunity because they're working from home uh, to be able to exercise more because they don't have to commute an hour or two Mm -hmm. hours a day. And so that, that gave them extra time to actually be more physically active. But then on the converse, there were also those who had to stay home and were not able to be as physically active because they were using active travel to get to and from work. They may have cycled two miles or you know three miles to, to work, uh, and that was cut out of their routine, and they weren't able to, to, to bring it in. Um, there were reports in, in the UK, for example, that um, older folks, uh, older citizens, um, were staying at home more because they were afraid. Uh, because of the pandemic, mm-hmm. and uh, they were moving around a lot less uh, compared to what they were pre-pandemic, and there was muscle wastage, uh, um, poor balance, uh, which obviously puts them at risk as well. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think um, and children, young people as well, as another demographic, uh, yeah. I think because they're not going to school, that active travel of you know walking to and from school or cycling to and from school if they are using active travel. Mm-hmm. Uh, the recess gym that they would engage in, the sports activities, for example, that the, the children would engage with uh, for team-based activities. I think all, all, a lot of that was cut out. And, you know, sitting is uh, a risk factor predominantly. I mean, smoking is sort of an active uh, process, right, where you're exposing yourself to a risk. Where sitting is a, is a completely passive process where you actually have to get up and move around a little bit more. So it's, much, it's a much easier risk factor to expose mm-hmm. yourself to, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely makes sense. And also, yeah, talking about habit change, and maybe we're going to deep dive a little bit also into that. What are the internal factors that really make us change habits? Um, but I, one comment I really have to make because I'm super concerned about it is like the group of children and adolescents. And we talked about pandemics a lot, but um, I've got a, a good friend who's working as a pediatrician with children in the hospital. And she told me also, they already see so many changes of like children being so unfit. There has been, I have read a study that even the, like the children changed uh, how, how long they can walk, not run for um, without being really exhausted in the last year, because of what you stated, they're really missing out on their activities. And uh, only talking about Germany, I mean, we have, I think, two-thirds of the male um, adults are obese and uh, half of the women. And I think it's, in general, in Europe, it's similar. In US, maybe a little bit worse. But that could be even worse when you look at the group that's now growing up because they really learned habits and it's so hard to unlearn what you learned. That's my take on it. We see something similar in the UK as well. Um, I mean, an anecdotal example, we did a study um, where we used uh, an IoT device called an activity tracker to track the movements and the activity uh, of, um, 
I think it was 126 children uh, across three schools, mm -hmm. both male and female, uh, grades eight and nine. And we had the activity tracker on their wrists for an entire week, and we monitored their activity levels for uh, the entire week. And, you know, the, the basic sort of uh, categories of activity level, you have sedentary, which is basically sitting or lying down. You have light physical activity, which would be the equivalent of standing up. Uh, you have moderate physical activity, which is a light walk or a light cycle. And then you have vigorous physical activity, which is like playing football. And we found that across this entire week, the children were sedentary, so sitting or lying down 75% of the time. Wow. And they... It's a lot. Yeah, it was less than 1% of that entire week that they were vigorously physically active. And what we're seeing now is that these children don't know how to use their bodies. And so one of mm -hmm. the things that some of the teachers and physical activity professionals are, are terming now is that we need to start looking at physical literacy for these children growing up because they do not know how to use their bodies because they're sitting so much and just staring at screens all the time. That, that's in interesting. I never heard that term. I mean, I always throw around the term digital literacy, <laughs> obviously, because I'm coming from this healthcare innovation field where we are really not only suffering from the uh, illiteracy of like the patients, but also the provider side. But physical literacy, that's a nice term. I, I would definitely keep that in mind. So after we described a little bit what's, I would say, going on not so well and why it's really difficult to pick up, uh, yeah, preventative um, lifestyle-related behavior, could we deep dive a little bit into those factors you already mentioned, like this sets of internal factors and also the determinants of health that come from more from external. So w where can we start to really make changes and what should people know to really change their behavior from an internal perspective? Yeah, that's a great question, Anna. Um, so from an internal perspective, so as you mentioned, internal factors, external factors, from an internal perspective, at least for me, the, the framing that I really like comes from a philosopher called Bernard Williams, Uh, an English philosopher, and he coined this phrase, the subjective motivational set. The subjective mm -hmm. motivational set. So it's subjective, meaning it's very personal for the individuals, and it's a motivational set. It motivates that individual to undertake certain actions. And, you know, from that perspective, I think what we need to understand uh, as a system and as a society uh, is you know, what are the factors that will motivate an individual based on their subjective needs and preferences to engage in healthier behaviors? Um, whether mm -hmm. that be to be more physically active or to eat a higher quality diet, uh, um, to engage in social activities for their mental well-being, um, etc. And, you know, I think that's going to vary depending on culture, the background of the individuals, the experiences that they have. In addition to that are the external factors, which you also mentioned. So, um, and the external factors are the things that would give these individuals the opportunities to actually engage in some of these healthy activities. So, taking a page from Amartya Sen, the, the Nobel Prize winning economist, and his capability approach, um, the social institutions and the private institutions within our society create a structure that will guide people's behavior. So you'll have the structural determinants of health, for example. Um, you know, what are the transit pathways? A great example in, 
in the Netherlands is all of the, the nice cycle lanes. In Germany, in Munich, mm -hmm. you have really great cycle lanes. In Berlin, you do not have great cycle lanes. Uh, but that's a structural determinant of health. Uh, the lack of um, high-quality foods available in certain areas, the, the term food deserts, is another structural determinant of health. Uh, an example in London, uh, there's a borough called Tower Hamlets. And in Tower Hamlets, there's a childhood obesity problem. And in addition to that, there are 42 fried chicken shops per secondary school <laughs> in Tower Hamlets. 42 oh, fried chicken shops per secondary school in Tower Hamlets, right? So that's a structural determinant of health because they don't have access to any of these high-quality foods. Um, solid educational infrastructure, uh, transport mechanisms available to individuals, uh, housing. These are all structural determinants of health, which will have a huge impact on the opportunities for individuals to actually engage in, in, in healthy lifestyles and to be healthy. And then the other big element around this in terms of the external factors are the commercial determinants of health. So the incentives created for businesses to actually um, want to engage in providing healthy opportunities for citizens. And I think the best example probably is the food system where, you know, yeah. one of the things that I coin is that the food systems across most of the world are set up as a lose, 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 win system. So you have individuals losing because of the NCD burden that a lot, a lot of which actually stems from poor quality diets. You have uh, the public systems also losing out because of 60 to 80 percent of healthcare expenditure, particularly in universal healthcare systems, stemming from NCDs, which stem from poor quality diets oftentimes. And then you have the environment, which is also losing because uh, a lot of the poor quality diet uh, items are actually very detrimental for the environment. The only winner mm -hmm. is the large multinational companies uh, that are actually producing these unhealthy foods. And so this is um, uh, a really great example of a commercial determinant of health. The incentive structures are created uh, such, uh, the subsidies are created such that you're actually incentivizing these unhealthy behaviors that predispose individuals and populations to NCDs. So, I mean, from a summary, you know, just summarizing from an internal perspective, you have the subjective motivational set, which is very personal for individuals, and that can be modified through education and knowledge. And then you have the external factors, the structural determinants, as well as the commercial determinants of health. Mm -hmm. And for those commercial determinants. So wouldn't it make sense for the three losers to team up and to really try to become a winner there? Because it's always like this hand-egg problem. Who's who's leading whose efforts there? Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think it, um, uh, I mean, that's a, it's, it's, a, it's a societal issue as well, you know, and I think it, so what we don't want is uh, a win-win-win-lose system. What we want is a win-win-win-win system. We want everybody to win because from a commercial perspective, uh, those large multinational firms are actually creating jobs as well, right? Um, and, you know, that's a, an important social determinant of health, the fact that you're employing individuals and they're employing thousands, tens of thousands of people across the world. So what we want to do is for those three entities that are currently losing to partner with the commercial sector, which is currently winning, and try to create a system where everybody is winning instead of one entity winning at the expense of three.
So really coming from this, make the healthier choice, the easier choice. So because currently the choice architecture, definitely coming back to food and shopping is really also a problem, really preventing people from engaging into, for ex with the example of the unhealthy diet to really yeah, foster this. Um, but I think, as you already mentioned, we are seeing some changes there and we are somehow getting there of course uh it's not everywhere i mean you also gave this very powerful example of uh of fried chicken <laughs> but uh it's starting in some of the the yeah, more innovative cities and um so hopefully we're getting to a better setup from a commercial perspective as well also what i wanted to stress because you just mentioned the social determinants of health so where we live how we are educated um how how close we live to for example a tree uh, all those social determinants they account for actually not not too um too less uh, for our health so i have in mind around 70% i mean it's always hard to say that but or do you do you think it's even more um, the, the figure I hear, I, firstly, I agree with you that it's, yeah. it's hard to put a, a concrete figure on this, but the figure I yeah. hear is between 70 to 80% uh, of mm -hmm. health outcomes, um, where health outcomes are defined as quality of life and length of life are determined by these social, uh, the, the social determinants of health, of which a subset will be the, the structural determinants of health. Okay, yeah, thanks for clarifying that. Because I think that's very motivating to see that because you all think like, yeah, it's the genes and yeah, I just, uh, I'm, it's my fate uh, to get uh, unhealthy or to suffer from a disease. But there's actually so much you can do. Um, and you already mentioned education is one part of it. But coming back to this internal perspective and this very yeah, subjective, personalized approach, this is of course, something I would like to dive into because all the listeners might really understand how they really can make those changes. So could you explain how you really find out what subjectively um, motivates you? How do you find those motivational sets? Yeah, so um, for an individual, it would be via introspection um, to understand you know, what motivates Uh, motivates them to act in certain ways and behave in certain ways and engage in certain activities. Um, if we're looking at it from a healthcare systems perspective, then you know it requires actually understanding uh, uh, that individual's um, background as well as uh, the things that matter to that individual. So Maureen Bisognono, who was the chief executive of the the IHI in the U.S. You know, one of the phrases that she uses is shifting from what matters medicine to what matters to you medicine. And so mm -hmm. actually really having a concrete understanding of what matters to that individual. So, you know, we talk, if you go to London, for example, any of the big cities, and you go to a Starbucks and you see some of the, the, the people working there, one thing that you can almost be guaranteed is that nobody working in these types of shops in the middle of a, an urban center Uh, is going to be able to afford to live anywhere near that shop because mm -hmm. it's just far too expensive. They're probably commuting an hour, hour and a half each way. So they're probably three hours of commuting a day. Now that's three hours of their life gone, just like that. And mm -hmm. that means that they don't have as many opportunities as people like me, for example, who lives a 15-minute cycle ride from the places where I need to go to, to for, for my meetings to engage in physical activity, to prepare meals uh, for yourself or for your family. And I think that has a huge impact on uh, and, uh, uh, you know, a, a person's ability to actually engage in these healthy 
uh, um, uh, uh, patterns of activity in their life. Um, and it also determines the priorities that they have. Because when you have such limited time, uh, you know, say so many of your hours are, are taken up by commuting, you have to make tough choices on what you do and what you don't do. And I think having an understanding of that and then working around the constraints that an individual faces to give them suggestions about how they can incorporate physical activity. You know, for example, if they're taking the subway, uh, then in t instead of taking the escalator, take the stairs. Um, it might take you mm -hmm. a few seconds more, but you'll at least get some physical activity in that way. And then trying to, you know, understand... Uh, um, their constraints firstly, and then giving them the knowledge about why this is important for themselves as well as their, for their future. And that's exactly where I think the, the most, the hurdle really is because to do intro, be introspective and really understand what your body tells you or what you really, what matters to you. It sounds super easy, but actually it's, it's pretty hard. Um, I mean, we mentioned physical, physical literacy. I'm definitely going to throw around that term in the, in the future as well in that respect, because have this, yeah, to have this intelligence about your body and your needs. Um, maybe they are in the beginning when you want to do behavior change sending you the wrong signals because you're used to sit and you want to sit. I stand up and I think like, okay, oh, I want to sit again. So do you think um, technology can really help us there? I mean, you all know a lot of innovative sets and uh, and apps, etc. cetera. Um, but isn't that something that really can help us to, to give this feedback, maybe some pushback and really remind us on doing it? Or is that, a, do we overestimate the influence of technology here? I think we do both, um, and I think it depends on what technology we're looking at. I think there's definitely a lot of hype around technology and what it can achieve, but I think there's a lot of untapped potential as well. I think a tremendous amount of untapped potential. Um, and technology is not an end in itself. It's a means to an end. And as a tool, I think it's an extremely powerful tool to help individuals understand themselves, as you mentioned, uh, as well as giving them the knowledge that they need Uh, to be confident that a certain type of action is good for them. And, you know, as an example, um, uh, you know, we both work uh, with uh, folks in Ali, uh, which is looking at musculoskeletal disorders. If we take knee pain as an example, right, uh, and I'll give a personal anecdote uh, of, of, of a family member who is suffering from knee pain and ankle pain. Um, and, you know, the thing is... Uh, They needed to lose weight. They were heavier than they needed to be. And it was causing pressure on their joints. And so what we went through was um, I was being a big pain and constantly asking them, you know, how much are you exercising? What did you do? Uh, can you increase the, the you know, muscle strength? And can you lose a little bit of weight? And over a six-month period, uh, they lost 18 pounds. Um, so mm -hmm. kilograms probably about seven kilograms, eight kilograms, something like this. Mm -hmm. um, and their knee pain and ankle pain disappeared. They didn't need a mm -hmm. surgery. They didn't need any medications. They just needed to lose weight. But the problem, kind of like what you were saying, was because they experienced that knee pain, when they would walk, they would experience the pain. Then they would get scared. And then they would think, okay, well, I yeah. better take it easy because I don't want to push myself and I don't want to make things worse. And so then they walk mm -hmm. less which makes it even worse because then, you know, they lose their muscle mass, they Absolutely. might gain weight, yeah. and you get into this vicious cycle. Vicious think, cycle. Mm -hmm. You know, if technology can help them to gain that confidence to know what is normal 
and what can be expected, mm -hmm. you know, I, I think that could be tremendously helpful. Yeah, I think that's that's an important important statement to to really educate, to really nudge a little bit and understand what's what's normal and really helpful. I completely believe that, f f uh, for example, the adolescents we mentioned, they have this digital literacy, so they are really the the best ones to use the positive uh, upsides of technology to really help them understand their bodies maybe better. And I personally also learned that it helps me to have really, for example, when I use the CGM, the continuous glucose monitoring, it helps me to get like this feedback from my body. Sometimes you, you eat something and you realize, oh, I'm super tired afterwards, but you cannot really specify and then you forget it. But when you see like really the data of your personal body and it's going up and you ate something that's really had your blood glucose spike and then really crushed down, you understand like, okay, that really made me feel not so well. And you can really change that behavior because you have this little experiment on your body. Then you don't have to do that every day or for years, but you all these little learnings you have, that's where I see a huge, huge potential to really, um, ha I mean, not everybody has the, the painful, um, painful Anand in his family who's telling them to lose weight. So you need sometimes someone to really give you this feedback. And that's where I see a lot of potential for this personalized approaches, these really subjective approaches. Yeah. Yep. I agree. Uh, and you know, I think, um, one of the things, uh, that we just need to be mindful of and that individuals need to be mindful of as well, that a lifestyle change, this is not like a medication where you can just pop a pill, right? This is something that they need to integrate into their life so yeah. that they're constantly improving their health. And uh, a positive control for all of this is the fact that, you know, people like yourself or people like me, people like, you know, the, the colleagues that I work with, they are healthy. So it is possible. Yeah. It takes discipline and time and, you know, the, the knowledge, but it is possible. Um, and yeah. it should be, from an equity perspective, accessible to different, you know, all populations, uh, the opportunity to be healthy and have uh, uh, well-being. Yeah, that's that's very true. And also, um, yeah, trying to be a role model, make these changes happen. That's true. I mean, as we are so anecdotal from our personal perspective, um, Could you share with us what you personally really do believe in? What is your self-care hack you yeah, might, might have started a few years ago or just recently picked up? What is it you do to really care for yourself? Yeah, I, so for me, it's always uh, I, I don't want to be a hypocrite. So I try to practice <laughs> what I preach. So if I'm if I'm saying that physical activity and you know, important, you know, the importance of lifestyle is important. Uh, uh, um, then, you know, in order for my words to be meaningful or any of my actions or writing or work to be meaningful, I do strongly and firmly believe that you have to practice what you preach. And, you know, this is actually something I got from my grandmother. She told me a story when I was very young. There was a, there was a sage uh, and um, a woman uh, uh, went to that sage with, his, with her child And uh, she was really worried and she said, you know, look, and this is apt for this example, um, my child is eating way too much sugar and, uh, you know, way too many sweets and I can't get him to stop. Um, can you help me? And so the sage is quiet for a little while and then he says, come back in three weeks. And so the mother comes back in three weeks 
uh, with the child. And then she says, hey, you know, if you remember me, I was saying, you know, my child is eating too much sweets. Uh, is there something you can do to help us? And so the sage then says, looks at the child and says, stop eating sweets. And then the mother was like, well, why didn't you just say that three weeks ago? Like, why did you have to make me come back again for, to say that? And the sage said, well, um, back at that, when you came the first time, I was eating sweets. So over this three weeks, I stopped eating sweets completely, which is why now I feel comfortable telling the child to stop eating sweets. That's a that's a great example. I cannot really comment on it because I absolutely believe you that you are practicing what you preach, and I think that's that's not only good for you, but really good being a good role model. Cool. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Anand, for sharing all those really highly scientific and also experience-based learnings with us. I definitely learned a new phrase, which is nice. I always like that, physical literacy. I definitely have that in my vocabulary now. And um, this is also really suitable for a lot of things we observe. So thank you for that also. <laughs> also great that you explained to us the different levels of prevention, like the primary, secondary, tertiary, and showed the complexity to it. And that we learned a little bit about the social determinants of health, some nice examples for the structural ones and the commercial ones. And last but not least, that each and everyone can now really try to understand a little bit more what are our subjective motivational sets. So what really is making for us the difference? Also, what I thought about when you gave your example from your family member, that trying to find someone who's in, in, in it with you. So who would help you to remind you of those changes you want to make or start some changes together. I think that's always super, super helpful because most of the values we have are shared with some of our peers. So, um, yeah, that's, that was definitely my takeaway from today. And Anand, if people want to maybe, yeah, talk to you, ask you some questions or maybe even invite you to, to speak to them or on some panels, where can they find you? Uh, I'm in Oxford and they can just drop me an email. <laughs> uh, you can find me on LinkedIn as well. Uh, you'll, you'll, <laughs> you'll, you'll have to be prepared for pain because uh, I will ask a lot of questions, uh, as you well know, because we've known and worked <laughs> with each other for several years. That's true. Um, but yeah, just be prepared. Uh, and I'm, and I'm, I'm very yeah. happy to, to work with anyone on this topic in, in particular, uh, because it's just so important. Cool. Thanks again, Anand. And if you also want to find out more about what we're doing at Hello Insight, you find our Instagram, Hello Insight Official. You can subscribe to our newsletter and have a look at our great blog um, on HelloInsight.com, which is called The Insider. And of course, subscribe to this podcast for upcoming episodes. So thanks again for being here, Anand. Thank you to the audience for listening, for being with us. And do not forget to take care of yourself. Goodbye. Bye.